please, and you can be turning to 1 John, 1 John, but I just wanted to illustrate something as soon as we dismiss the kids, or these young men go down. All right, I quickly wanted to illustrate something before we get started on the message, and uh, kind of applies, leads into the message, but even just that song that we sang, well, it's such a heartfelt song, tremendous job, guys, that was a blessing, um, to, to cry out to God to keep me safe till the storm passes by. Now, I want to, um, I, I need one of you, um, Dan, I want you to stand over here for me, okay, and without any... Uh, um, your reverence here, Dan is going to be God, all right? Uh, the rest of you are going to come over here, and, uh, and let's see, John Mark, I'm going to make John Mark the man, okay? John Mark, you're the man. Um, so you, I want you to stand right here, okay? And you're the man, and the, I'm sorry, guys, the rest of you are animals, and I want you to come over here, okay? Uh, you pick which kind you want to be, whether you're a creeping, crawly thing, or a four-footed beast, or whatever, a thing of the air or in the sea, uh, but you are the, uh, you, are, you all comprise the creation of God. And I want you to imagine now this aisle and this pulpit here, and there is a great chasm between God and his creation by virtue of who they are. He is the eternal, almighty, self-existent God. And so there is some way in which he is totally distinct and forever different from all of his creation, which are uh, obviously made by him. So uh, there is this great chasm, and in one sense, God stands alone over here, and all of his creation is on the other side. And yet, as it pertains to relating to God and interacting with God, this one creation right here stands on this side, and now the chasm is in a different place. Uh, before, um, man was as distinct from God as are the animals in the sense of being a created being and wholly different from his God. You understand what I'm saying? Wholly dependent on and created by. And yet, now we change the chasm to distinguish this apex of creation from all the rest of the created beings in how God intends to interact with this one. Why? Because when he created man, he created man in his own image and likeness. And man doesn't relate downward to the animals, which is taught in our society. Man relates upward to God. God wants him to communicate directly with him, and man has a cognition and a self-awareness, and so he cries out to God like none of the animals do. He cries out, God, keep me safe, and he cries out in that process to an almighty, loving God, and I want you to recognize what a special place we are in as not just believers, but as human beings made in the image and with the likeness of God, relating upward to our Creator not downward to the rest of creation. Thank you, guys. You can be seated. You're in 1 John this morning. 1 John. 
And we see in 1 John chapter number 4 and verse number 8 an interesting statement, statement which gives us pause and causes us to think about yet again another attribute of our God. Now, we've talked in weeks past and considered uh, how, how he is the only wise God and what, it, what significance there is in his being the faithful creator uh, we've talked about other attributes of God, but this morning we find it in 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God exists love. It doesn't say God is a pretty loving God or God's fairly loving or God is loving. It says God is love. God is love. I find the uh, language a fascinating thing. The English language is an enjoyable thing uh, to study. You might go, oh, brother, in school, English was terrible. <laughs> but the language is interesting, especially as you find out uh, the backgrounds to words. Where did that word come from? What did it mean originally? What was that thought taken from? And sometimes our, our words have uh, an almost hilarious breadth of meaning within the English language. This morning, I came down and and, uh, and there was a tray of muffins there somebody had kindly bought for and given to us. And, and, uh, and, I, and I, my two girls were in the kitchen, two youngest girls. And I walked up and I said, I love muffins. And I picked up a muffin and I said, you know what that means? I said, that means I want to eat it up. And then I grabbed Journey's hand and I said, I love Journey. And she smiled, and Pacey's like, you want to eat her up. <laughs> Obviously, we know those two things aren't going to follow. It doesn't logically follow that if I love a muffin and want to eat it, that I love my daughter and want to eat her. That just doesn't seem quite right. You know that there's such a stretch in the term love. We use it in such a variety of ways. Now, I looked up the other day um, some examples of what we might call a romantic love. Now, we see this all over uh, the world and in Hollywood especially that, that uh, thrives on the emotions and the, the, the passion of the moment and how these two were drawn to love each other. And it shows us essentially a short little snippet of their life and how their emotions cause them to see the other one in such a beautiful light. And, oh, they just can't live without each other. And that's all about all we see. Okay. It's a romantic love. There's the story. I told my wife I wouldn't tell these stories, but I changed my mind. I'm going to tell these stories. I won't, cry. I won't break down sobbing uh, for you. But uh, I looked up a few of these stories, and indeed, they are touching. There was one lady who had been in the Boston Marathon when the bomb went off. Remember the bomb, the nail bomb that was made? Somebody uh, blew that at the Boston Marathon. Well, her leg was severed, and this firefighter, I believe it was, he, uh, he you know, I guess helped rescue her and hold her hand on the way to the hospital. Well, eventually he, he came back to check on her or whatever and sat with her mother while she was in the hospital, and you guessed it, long story shorter, they finally got married. Oh, that's a neat story. Or there's, the, there's another young lady who was going to get married, and prior to her wedding, she was involved in some kind of accident which uh, incapacitated her as far as being able to walk. And so she had just determined that she was going to go through with the wedding, but she was going to go down the aisle in a wheelchair. But her, her groom didn't let her go down the aisle in a wheelchair. He came down and he picked her up and he carried her down the aisle himself. Oh, man, doesn't that touch your heart, move you to tears? We'd say, no, that's kind of a romantic love. What does the marriage look like 10 years later? I don't know. But at the moment, oh, man, that was really touching. 
But then you start to see stories, and I, I feel like we see several of them even in our church, where week after week we say, anybody celebrating an anniversary? And we hear 40 and 50 and 60 years. Now we're talking about a steadfast love, which more reflects God's kind of love, that there's such a breadth in the concept of love. And so it helps us as we dive into this study uh, to say, again, what is love? Now, the Greeks had a way of distinguishing by different words, different kinds of love. There was the erotic kind of love. There was the brotherly love. And so hence the Philadelphia, we get the, the, the city of brotherly love, basically named after the word love. And then there was the agape, which word is used of God's kind of love. And, uh, and there was a storge, which was a love of a parent to a child. So they had differentiating words, and we might say that we do in some degree too. But when we're talking about love this morning and us relating upward to our creator and the kind of love that, that our faithful, almighty, self-existent creator God manifested to us, what are we talking about? How do we define that love? Well, if you have a pen, you might want to write this down or ask me for it later. Because uh, it's not just a two-word definition here, but I'm going to define love this way. Love is giving of oneself to bring about the greatest good in the life of another. Let me say that again. Love is the giving of oneself to bring about the greatest good in the life of another. Now, when we talk about the word good, again, we have to be careful because we so easily assume meanings to words. What is good? Who's the definer of good? When God says, no good thing will I withhold from them that walk uprightly, well, we could all apply our own definition and say, well, certainly there must be a, you know, a yacht waiting for me somewhere, right? That would be great. But what is God's definition of good? We understand God is the definer of good. And of course, the greatest good in the life of any person is to know God better and to relate to God according to God's design, consistent with the character of God. Okay? So, so in other words, to, to, what, what is good? Good is relating to God in the way that God has designed. Because when we do that, we become what God designed us to be. We experience the blessings of God. We know God who is life. And so the greatest good for anybody is to more accurately, properly relate to God. So let me go back to the definition. Love is giving of oneself to bring about the greatest love in the life of another. Consistent with the character of God, we seek to manifest the completeness, that's the peace we've talked about, that results in obedience to God. In other words, we show by our very lives what it means to live a whole life of peace as we are obedient to God. And when we do so, we influence others to know and to seek him. Maybe it's to take the next step or to perceive him more accurately in some way. Obeying God in everything is loving others because it is leaving an inescapable witness with everyone who come, comes in contact with us. We, we somehow show by our life when we are just fully obedient to God and we're relating to God the best way we know how. We're, we're obeying him as he's revealed himself. We're loving him for who he is and we're just living in the light of that design. When we live that way, we manifest a witness, a peace, a completeness 
which is a testimony to other people that they cannot escape. Now, how is this love of God manifested? How does God manifest his love? Well, number one, he manifests it, now track with me here, through revelation. In other words, he shows himself. He reveals himself. That in and of itself is an act of love because if you're supposed to relate to God, but you can't find and you don't know him, how can you find the greatest good? So this loving God revealed himself to humanity. Why? That we might know him. Jeremiah chapter number nine, he says, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let me find the actual text here. Let not, thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord, that he understandeth and knoweth me. In Proverbs chapter 22 Uh, as you understand the context of the book of Proverbs, a father writing to his son that he might grow in wisdom. Notice what he says in Proverbs 22, verse 20 and 21. He says, Have not I written to thee excellent things and counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? Shouldn't that be my heart as a father, is to make, cause my sons to be certain of the words of truth that in time when they're asked a question, they can answer with certainty, what is truth? And so this father is speaking to his son and says, have not I written unto thee excellent things that you might know the certainty of the words? What is that but the very heart of God? Who inspired that to be written? Who directed Solomon to have that kind of a heart for his son? It was God, because that's God's heart to give us excellent testimony that we might have the certainty of the words of truth. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse uh, number 20 says, Hear counsel and receive instruction that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. If the father wants the son to hear then he's going to give him something to hear. And again, it reflects the heart of the creator who wants all men to hear, to know him, and will provide enough revelation to be heard. Are you following with me? You say, well, that was a writer of Proverbs. But who wrote scripture? Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So scripture is a revelation, yes, through the pen of men, but of the heart of God, of the person of God. And so when he says, hear instruction and be wise, that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end, that's the heart of God to every human saying, hear and be wise. But what is there to hear if God hasn't revealed himself? But he has. He's revealed himself as an act of love that you might know and that you might be wise, that you might relate to him appropriately. What is the goal of this revelation? To be conformed to the image of his son. To see him for who he is and to, be, to reflect that very image of Christ. By revelation, we see God's order, God's design. He, he's manifested himself in creation that as we look all around us, we say, wow, this is a really amazing design. 
This is an orderly universe, and we have an orderly God. He's revealing himself, you know, not just in the order and the design, but take it a step further in the consequences that come by not following the design, the natural effects of sin. If I don't look where I'm going and I run into a tree, it hurts. So How could God be so cruel as to make me hurt just for running into a tree? That's part of the design, that when I... When I when I act contrary to the design, when I run into a tree, I hurt. So guess what? Next time I go, I'm going to watch where I'm going. You say, well, that's sort of a silly illustration, but it, you know, it can be applied a thousand ways. In our lives, we make a decision. We feed the flesh. We go our own way. And then we begin to experience the destruction and the misery and the emptiness and the chaos in our homes that ensues. And we say, that's just part of the design. That chaos should cause us to stand back and go, what have I done wrong? Ah, God wants me to do it this way. Yes, even in the discipline, even in the the sorrow, there's a revelation of God saying, turn back, look at me, follow my way, relate to me because that is life, that is success. And God lovingly does so. Yet we're very familiar, if you turn to John chapter 3, We're very familiar with how he manifests his love in John chapter 3, beginning in verse number 14. In John chapter 3 and verse 14, we read this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, that is, when they were being bit by these poisonous snakes and they were dying because of their murmuring against God, so God created a way that if they uh, they made this brass serpent, put it on a pole, and they'd hold it up, and when men would look at that serpent, they would be healed. And he says, he refers back to that, and he says, so as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, even so... Must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved, now I'll tell you, this is interesting, from an emotional American perspective, it's not, I, 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 it, this reflects how we would read this passage. Now I'm not faulting people for reading it this way because it's how we understand it in English, but it is a good representative of how we think in America. We think love... Oh, love is an emotion. I, I love you because I feel it. And so when we read John 3, 16, we say, God so loved. Do you know what the word so means? In this way. It doesn't mean this much. Oh, God was so moved over you. He, he, just, he just, oh, he just swooped you up. And No, it's actually saying in this way, God loved you. In what way did God love you? We'll read on. For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we see, obviously, his love is manifested not simply by his revelation in, in showing himself that we might know him, but then in his sacrifice. 
coming down as a man and harkens back to Genesis, I think, when Abraham says to to his son, God will provide himself a lamb. That may not be exactly what he meant in that passage, but that is exactly what God did. He provided himself a lamb, the lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, who came down, fulfilled the law, which no man could do, and then hung as an innocent man, the God-man, dying on the cross as that lamb, that sacrifice that could take away the sin of the world. And so we see the manifestation of his love in his sacrifice. But then lastly, and similar, uh, reflecting somewhat of what we already talked about, in discipline, the relational effects of sin, not just the natural effects of pain um, uh, and things like that, but the relational effects to sin. What we talked about, the chaos, the sorrow, the emptiness, that we might recognize the destruction of our sin and turn back to him. So God has manifested himself, and God has manifested his love to us. What is love? That was giving of himself to bring about the best in our lives, which would be to know him and to relate with him properly. Yet I have to throw this in there. Some, some men say, as a relative of mine did years ago, something like this, how could a loving God send a man to hell? And I feel that it's, it's good to occasionally address this issue because you may stop in your tracks when somebody says that and try to, and try to formulate an answer. But let me give you some thoughts here. How could a good or even a sane man reject the loving God? Let's turn it around a little bit. When a God manifests himself like that and he reveals himself all over the place in, in, in an undeniable fashion so that we're without excuse and then he sacrifices his own son to die in our place to rescue us from ourselves and reconcile us to him, how could a good man reject the loving God? If a man was so wicked to reject this God who is love, the Bible says, he wouldn't want to tolerate God eternally anyway. Does that rejecter deserve to be left alone? Uh, what, eternally sitting on his naughty mat with everything he wants minus the very reason that everything good exists? Does that make sense? It really boils down to the fact that humans tend to think that hell is a disproportionate punishment for rejecting God. But consider, how dark is the demand for autonomy from God. What does a man want who doesn't want the light and the peace of God within God's design? He wants to rival God, to enjoy his power and rewards of his benevolence without submitting to him. He rejects the Almighty, the God who is love. What does this deserve? An, et an, an eternal slap on the hand? The man who would not have God, who wants to be free from God, is asking for an impossibility. He can never escape the design of God. He can never exist outside of God. The Bible says, in him we live and move and have our being. He will always be subject to God's order. But if that man does not want to live at peace with God, he chooses to forever live at enmity with God. And that place happens to be a place of fire. Why? I'm not entirely for sure, but it's not inconsistent with the design of God, and it certainly doesn't seem disproportionate to me. The consequences built into the ordered creation are indications of God who loves us 
And he wants us to recognize him for who he is. He wants us to experience the glory of life as he has designed it for us. Why would, the thought, why would we entertain the thought that if I submit to God and if I become everything he wants me to be, I'll be in a straitjacket and I won't enjoy things and I'll just feel so restricted? Why do we think that? Why do we think that a God who is love wouldn't design a glorious existence for him and that that existence would be in connection and relation and submission to him? In fact, the work of the Holy Spirit, who is God, is a work of love. Think about the things the Holy Spirit does, drawing mankind, wooing him to himself. Do you know what I mean by that, drawing? Well, before I ever was saved, I just felt compelled to start searching, and I just had a, and I started to look, and I started to question, where am I going to go? Drawing. The Holy Spirit drawing you to God, convicting you of sin, illuminating your mind to the truth. And then after you're saved, enabling you to be a witness to other people, encouraging you throughout life, witnessing and assuring in your heart, giving you that security that the Holy Spirit sealed you to the day of redemption. All those aspects of the Holy Spirit, what is that? That's an act of love. That's a loving God interacting with man to bring about the best in that man's life. So I'd have to say that God's love is proactive. We'd say it's first. How do we know that? First John 4, 19. We love him because he first, protos, he first loved us. His love was extraordinary. I would say sacrificial, but I also say extraordinary because it was above ordinary. It was different than other people. Romans 5, um, Romans 5 beginning in verse number 6, lays out that distinction there. Let me read it for you. Romans 5 and verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, but God commendeth, demonstrated, proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, alienated, rebels, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's extraordinary. His love was eternally innate. What do you mean by that? I go back to our text. God is love. There never was a time when God wasn't love. He he didn't become loving when he created the world, and now he had something to love. He's always been Love, it's intrinsic to him. It's part of his very nature. His love was actively given. All right? It was actively given. And we'll we'll come back to that in a minute. His love, once received, is secure. It's permanent. It's perpetual. Um, Romans chapter 8, 35 and uh, 38 through 39. Paul writes this. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. He says in verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in 
Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you've accepted that love and you've become a child of God, that's inseparable, inseparable. His, one, his love once received is secure. His love is beyond our natural comprehension. We'll get to that in a minute. His love, as I said, is eternal, and it is awe-inspiring. It is awe-inspiring. We'll touch again on that in a minute. God's love, as we showed in the beginning, gives meaning. What gives meaning to life? Okay? That he, he, that, that distinction that we relate to God upward and he wants us to know him and that we're made in his very image and with his likeness and we could have an eternity with him and to know him. He gives us meaning and God's love extends everything good to us. God is love. So what does that mean, God is love? And you say, well, partly what you're describing, Pastor, is that he, is, that he has demonstrated love, that he is loving. What does it mean that God is love, and what implications does that have? Okay, so what does it mean that God is love? It means that God innately, immediately, and constantly works to make every relationship what it ought to be by the definition of his own nature. He loves within the Trinity, and he loves his creation by revealing himself and interacting with his human creation to draw them to the place of greatest blessing, which is what? Peace, joy, effectiveness, which comes by an increasing conformity to his design. It's all in knowing him. It is in knowing him. So what are the implications? Okay, so if God is love, literally that, that out of his very person, he, 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 he continually works to make me, uh, to provide for me the best that I could have or that I could be within his design. What, what are the implications? Number one, we must be listening and obeying. How is, how is God revealing himself? What's he saying? What does he want? Who is he? We need to be listening and obeying, which is to say we should be loving him. We should be loving him. That is, bringing our relationship into such a place where it's everything he designed it to be. We must be actively removing hindrances to a growing knowledge of or obedience to him. To come to him and say, God, I want to know you. Now teach me. And as, as I recognize something's in my way, something hinders me from knowing you. Or I know you and now things hinder me from obeying you. And I begin to cast those things out and rip them out of my life to say, God, I want to love you. What does that mean? I want to relate with you so that I am exactly who you wanted us to be, me to be. And our relationship is exactly as you designed it. Now would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, as we meditate for a moment. 1 John chapter number 3. The apostle writes in the first verse of 1 John, not the gospel of John, but the later book, 1 John, towards the end of your Bible. 1 John chapter number 3, the very first verse. John says, Behold! What's that word? Look, recognize, see that? Have you ever been on vacation and you're, you're driving through the mountains and you, of course you can't see a whole lot, a lot of trees along the side of the road and all of a sudden you drive and whoosh, 
the landscape opens up and you see off the mountain and you see out into the distance and how it goes down in the forest and maybe, maybe a, a river down there and a cabin out in the woods. Look, you say, We're trying not to swerve off the road. What is John saying? Behold, look, perceive what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. What manner? It's, it's distinct. It's set apart. That same word is used in a few other places in the New Testament. And Mary pondered in her heart what manner of salutation this must be. Or when he stilled the sea or he showed, he evidenced his power over nature and they said, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? What manner, how distinct, how different is this man? And now, John, what manner of love What distinct, special, unique kind of love the Father hath given to us that we should be called the sons of God. The sons of God. Remember that right here. There's all of creation as distinct from their creator as everything else. They are created beings. And yet God bestowed on us a love that we, we humanity, Created beings, uh, dirt, flesh, we might be called the sons of God. We might relate to God as, could I put it, family is the term he uses. He says in another passage that we could become joint heirs with Christ. What manner of love is that? How distinct. How unique, how superior. Behold, John says, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed, hath given to us that we should be called the sons of God. It's no, no wonder then that 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. With what manner of a love he loved us. And as we draw towards the end, I want to to bring you to this amazing passage, which I'm going to tell you at the outset, Ephesians chapter 3, that I'm not going to be able to plumb the depths uh, on this one in the time that we have. I probably couldn't in an hour's time. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. But uh, if you or some of you are younger, you say, I know how I learned how to swim. I'll tell you how I learned. Uh, Yeah, my uncle picked me up and threw me in a pond. (laughs) I figured out in a hurry how to swim. I'm going to kind of throw you I'm going to throw you into a, to an ocean here as we meditate on the love of God. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul writes this. His, this is his prayer for the Ephesian believers. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. So there's a prayer for strength that, there's a purpose now, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. 
I'm afraid maybe some people get too squeamish about wanting to think about or preach about or talk about the biblical concept of love. We take love, you know, talk about love too much and people will take it and run with it and interpret it wrongly. Well, let's, let's interpret it correctly then, like we're trying to do this morning. Let's, let's say what love really is and let's say how God really manifests himself and now let's talk about biblical love. He says that you might be rooted and grounded in love. It's the very soil into which you grow is the, is the love of God. And he said that you might understand the length and the breadth and the depth going down and the height going up and to know the love of Christ. Notice what he says in um, verse 19, which passeth knowledge. I want you to know something which is beyond knowledge. (laughs) Do you kind of see the lake here throwing you into the lake? We we stand on the shoreline and we, we look and go so far and it goes so wide, and it goes so wide, and it's so deep. And we understand in some ways that we're rooted into that very love. We relate to God because of his love, and we love him back, and, and we, we seek to know in some more depth that actual love of God which passeth knowledge, that in knowing and understanding and perceiving the love, what's the final product? That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Doesn't mean you'll be God. Doesn't mean you'll gain a divinity. But don't you get the idea there that as we root ourselves into the love of God, as we ponder and meditate on the love of God, and as we become to understand the fullness of the love of God, there is a fullness of the Christian life. Oh, brother, we better be careful about talking about love now. We might get to... I don't know, new evangelical or something. You know, we need to talk about, you know, talk about holiness and justice and you, come on, keep doing it, keep doing it. Look, there's a place for obedience, of course. God is just, God is holy. Not minimizing any of that. But stop for a minute this morning and recognize that you're rooted and grounded in love. Are you? Or do you feel like you're rooted and grounded in law? Or do you feel like you're, you're somehow uh, relating to God constantly by, uh, by a list? We understand what love is and we say, God is constantly working to bring about the best in my life, which means a full and accurate understanding of who he is. And how I'm supposed to relate to him. And I love him back by saying, God, I want that relationship to be everything it's supposed to be. Show me, show me, Lord, what's in the way. And when it's in the way, I begin to throw it out of the way that I might know him better. That I might relate with him more accurately. That I might begin to understand in some measure what it means to be filled with all the fullness of God. Songwriter said, Oh, love of God... How rich and pure. How measureless and strong. I think he had a pretty good hold on it. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? 
were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above. Drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. What a beautiful illustration of what it is to express the unfathomable love of God. And I suggest to you that in some ways, the sky is a parchment. And God has manifested himself in a way that we can see. The beauty of the lily, the majesty of the mountain, the complexity of every part of the human body, even the painful effect of stubbing our toe, all are manifestations of a design. The creator God is revealing himself through his work and thereby his witnessing to his value and thereby our need of him. Furthermore, he speaks directly and distinctly through the preserved word of his person, his design, his working in history, and his reality, realities for the future. In revealing himself, he is loving us. He's giving of himself to make us all that he created us to be. He's moving us, if we will perceive and submit, to know him. And that is truly the best for us. We begin as we meditate on the Lord, we follow Him, and we permit His Holy Spirit to work in our lives, He begins to grow in us, the, or through us, the fruit of the Spirit, the first of which is love. The fruit of the Spirit, God working in our lives, then enables us to love. And so, we love others. How do we love others? We give of ourselves to bring about God's best for that person. Maybe it's clarifying God to them, either through snippets of conversation or godly habits of life or a disposition that manifests the working of the Spirit and how God can transform a man. Maybe it's causing God to be perceived more accurately through our speech, what we say and don't say and how we say it. Maybe it's our choices, our very attitudes, reflecting the character of God. The Bible says in Romans 5, 5 that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then we remember the first commandment. What's the first commandment? To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we love God, one more time, we're interacting with God in such a way as to bring about His design in our lives, which is to remove all hindrances. It is to actively pursue the motto of life, nothing between my soul and the Savior. Nothing between my soul and the Savior so that His blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of His favor. I am resolved. There's nothing between. Are you looking for God this morning and recognizing His love, His work to continually sanctify, to draw you, to manifest Himself to you? Are you opening your eyes to his work around you, recognizing his guiding hand and submitting to every expression of his will? Not trying to modify his design or cherry-picking what he wants us to do, but truly seeking God and submitting to everything that we see. Let me ask you, what one thing could you do today that would demonstrate your love of God? 
Relating to God now, what's one thing you could do today that would demonstrate your desire to remove all obstacles and obey? What's one obstacle that needs to be removed? Is there some aspect of your attitude? Your interaction with certain people? Uh, your leadership of your family? Your, your treatment of your family? Your attempt to know God through his word? Are there any obstacles there? What's, pick one. Pick one and say, Lord, I want to remove that obstacle. I want to obey you in that area. I know what's right, or I want to know what's right. Now, by your Holy Spirit, I want to obey and submit. And even if it hurts, if it's a change in my thinking, if it's a change in my behavior, if it's a setting aside of my priorities, I want to relate to you properly in that area. I want to love you. Who in your sphere could you nudge a step closer to knowing God today? Is there somebody that you could love better than you are? And by that, I mean a biblical definition of love. In some way, interact with them in a way that moves them closer to God's perfect design for them. Maybe it's putting a stone in their shoe. I don't mean that literally to be mean. I mean, maybe it's someone who doesn't really know God hasn't thought much about God. And in conversation, you begin to introduce a thought intentionally to get his mind steered towards thinking about God and his need for God or, 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 a, or reason why he should or could believe in God. Maybe it's putting a stone in his shoe. For someone else, maybe it's a, an encouraging word to, to lift them up and to give them strength and to point their face back towards the Lord. For someone else, maybe, for maybe a friend to a friend, it's a rebuke. The wounds of a friend are faithful. Maybe it's confronting somebody that you have influence and you ought to be using that influence in their lives to help sanctify them a little bit and move them towards God's design for their life. Maybe it's as a husband to a wife creating an environment of growth for your family and for your wife. Maybe that has to do with your attitude when you get home from work. Maybe that has to do with your habit of family devotions. There's several different things here. What can you do to begin nudging people, loving them, by bringing them into conformity to God's design?